and welcome to our class podcast for American Writers One, beginnings to 1865. I'm Dr. Carrie Tippin, your instructor and host. Today we're discussing Young Goodman Brown by Nathaniel Hawthorne and Lygia by Edgar Allan Poe. Let's meet our panel. Uh, please introduce yourself by telling us your name, your major, and any winter must-haves, any like things you can't live without during the winter. Uh, Haley, why don't you go first? Okay, so my name is Haley Bartlett. I am a creative writing major now. I used to be English. Um, my winter must-have isn't like, okay, so this is a little strange, but mm-hmm. um, I would have to say like decorations, like Christmas decorations, because I grew up in a house where my neighbor decorated his entire house, like head to toe, like crazy, like was on TV for it. So I'm like, if I don't see that, it feels like it wasn't really like winter. I understand. When does this begin? Does this begin like November 1st or day after Thanksgiving? Yeah, he starts decorating like late, late October and then Thanksgiving it all like comes on for the first time. I love it. I love it. I'm thinking about putting up the Christmas decorations early this year too, just to have something bright and shiny and pretty in my house. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Oh, Hannah, go ahead and introduce yourself. All right. I'm Hannah. Uh, an English major, and I think a winter must-have for me is probably, like, peppermint, you know, like, yeah, hot chocolate and candy canes, and, um, uh, my, pol- my family, my family is Polish, so we have, like, a million cookies, and we make these, like, peppermint chocolate cookies, <laughs> and they're amazing, um, so I'd say peppermint. <laughs> I love that. Cool. Well, I'm Dr. Tippin. My major is English and my winter must have is blankets. All the blankets, so many blankets, a blanket on every chair. Uh, I need big squishy socks and lots of blankets. That's how I'm going to get through this winter. Uh, Listeners, if you can hear my dogs (laughs) having a short play session with their loud toenails on our wood floors, please forgive us. Okay, here we go. (laughs) So our conversation today is going to be about Lygia and Young Goodman Brown. And seriously, are the dogs loud? Can I, do we need to pause for that? They're a little loud. Okay. I won't lie. (laughs) They're having such a good time. (laughs) Okay, hang on. I'm going to pause. Okay. (laughs) And we're back. Um, I picked up the cute dogs and now we're okay. All right, so so Hawthorne uh, and Poe, I picked these particular stories uh, because they're close to Halloween. Yes, we just finished Halloween um, and they're kind of spooky. They have a little spookiness to them, uh, but they're also kind of tied together to the idea of Gothic fiction. And in this era that we're talking about, uh, romanticism is kind of taking off in America about 50 years later than England. Um, but there's a lot of names in there that are probably familiar to you. Hannah, I'm thinking that it might be a good list for you. Uh, like Dickens, Charles Dickens, somebody we know. Yeah, the Brontes, I'm, uh, I'm Wordsworth. I'm obsessed with Gothic literature. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Of all kinds, from all eras, or what in particular, Hannah? Uh, from all eras, but I will say um, Mary Shelley. Oh, yeah. Is just, I, I absolutely adore her. Yes. Did you watch the movie, the newest movie? I haven't, not yet. Oh, I watched it on an airplane and wept for the whole thing. It's so, so, so good. 
highly recommend. Yeah, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Uh, so it is a specific, like it's a specific genre within the subgenre, uh, and it is kind of time and context bound. So I did want to do a little bit of uh, preview of those things before we get into the discussion. Uh, but some of the things highlighted in romanticism and especially in Gothic fiction uh, is the idea of the individual conscience um, and imagination. And I wonder if that makes sense to you in context of the transcendentalists we talked about last week. Do, do you see a connection there? Why would that be appealing in the era of transcendentalism? Any thoughts? Maybe not. <laughs> the transcendentalists were interested in like the individual conscience, right? Think about Thoreau uh, saying things like, you know, one man's morality is like the most important thing, right? His own conscience is his guide, right? Everything else can kind of be to the side. Yeah. Uh, also a reaction against industrialization. So remember Thoreau also with his machine metaphor? Do you see any evidence of that reaction to industrialization here? in either of these stories today? There aren't any like rogue machines in here, but do you think they, they both kind of look to a different time, don't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a pre-industrial past. Um, the novel is certainly more important in this era, finally, right? We've kind of been talking about that throughout the semester, that the novel is not as important as poetry or is not as high uh, of a literature. And I think right around this time is where that's beginning to flip, where we're beginning to see more interest in novels. Um, and they all focus a little bit on the supernatural and the grotesque as a part of the genre. And certainly the two things we talk about today have that element. Supernatural, I think you get. Do you have a good definition for grotesque? What does that word mean to you? Um, I would say when we think of something that's grotesque, we think of something that's not quite right when mm -hmm. you look at it. Um, maybe a little deformed, maybe there's, you just look at it and you don't feel, it doesn't feel right yeah yeah I yeah I agree with that kind of like a intense discomfort comes from something that's grotesque yes yes those are all excellent right because it's not um the grotesque is something that's sort of it's definitely still human it's definitely still like us there's something about it that's kind of relatable but it's also a little disgusting or unsettling right there's something yeah. about it that's not quite right I like that definition of it um there's another writer who's kind of famous for the grotesque uh called Sherwood Anderson and he sort of describes it as like looking at something through a fisheye lens where there's something that's just out of proportion it's not it, it looks humanoid right but it's out of proportion something is too big something is too there's too much focus on one particular thing and it becomes really skewed and I think that's maybe a good way to think about the grotesque in these stories too uh, because it's often associated with like obsession yeah this single-minded focus uh, where the person kind of becomes one thing instead of a full round person right this over exaggerated focus so we'll, we'll kind of come around to thinking about these elements in each of the stories as we discuss 
Um, but let's start with Lygia. And I can't remember who wanted to talk about Lygia, but um, I did, yeah. Hannah, Hannah. So why don't you give us a quick summary? All right. So Lygia begins with the narrator stating that he doesn't really remember um, when we're assuming it's he. Uh, when he met Lygia, he doesn't remember anything about her family. He doesn't know if he ever knew this. And he moves on to just explain how absolutely devastatingly beautiful she was. But she's also like kind of brilliant. She, uh, she's curious, I guess is the right word, about mm -hmm. um, like willpower and like life and death and she's almost like otherworldly we spend a lot of time uh on her eyes and i was gonna ask you that question so please tell me about the eyes they are not quite right i guess um i mean they're definitely enchantingly beautiful i'd say but they're also described as almost too big yeah Think about oh. that grotesque fisheye lens, yeah. right? Yeah. Her eyes are like too much. Okay, keep going. Okay, so um, the narrator and Lygia are married and then she suddenly becomes sick. And after I'd say a long battle with this illness, she does end up dying after a sudden burst of energy where she recites a poem. Yes that ultimately comes down to the worm beating out the man. The- Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the narrator sort of goes into like this, I'd say a deep depression, obviously. Yeah. He just lost the this woman that he's absolutely in love with. He, um, turns to opium and mm -hmm. he also marries another woman um lady rowena i forget her last name of tremaine yes mm -hmm. where he, he loathes her like he hates her she's the absolute opposite of lygia yes and it seems like she doesn't really like him very much either no according <laughs> to the narrator uh, so they're together for about two months before she gets sick. Uh, she ultimately dies. Mm -hmm. And then she's like not quite dead. And then she dies again. And she's not quite dead. And through all of this, it seems like she might be seeing a ghost or some sort of other being. Mm -hmm. And when she does ultimately die... She then stands up and the narrator notices that is no longer uh, Lady Rowena of Tremaine, but is instead Lygia. And that's the end. Yeah. 
it. That was a very good summary. Yes, yes, you hit it all. You got all of it. Uh, you got her great beauty. You got her brilliance. You got her focus on will, which I think is a really interesting question we should absolutely talk about as we go. Uh, and that like there's this other opposite woman who kind of stands in and then sort of the magical supernatural gothic part is that she she comes back from the dead to possess the body of Rowena. Uh, very good. You got it all. You got it all. Hannah, or, uh, sorry, Hannah, Haley, Haley, do you have any clarifying questions or things you weren't sure about in the story? Um, I don't know. I think like the biggest question is kind of the one that's already on the screen right now is like, is the narrator really even trustworthy because of like the weird opium addiction? Yes, right. Is it is it actually supernatural or is he just like really on drugs? Like which of those yeah. things? Maybe maybe both of those things we will find out. <laughs> Hannah, did you have any questions about the story or did it all kind of come clear to you? No, I think it seems I mean, I've read it before. I've read a okay. lot before so I think I kind of have the gist of it yeah 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 I was very grateful for all of the footnotes uh I feel like there is a, a solid focus on like Egyptian mythologies and stuff that I don't know that that well there's also quite a bit of historical illusion like myth mythological illusion that would not be clear to me um, unless there were really nice footnotes. So a lot of it was just sort of like, oh, that sounds like a weird thing. Okay, fine, I just accept it, <laughs> I accept it. What do you think all those illusions add up to? Either one of you, maybe Hannah, you can try first. Why do you think he talks so much about those things? I can't say I know too much about Egyptian mythology. Yeah. But I do know quite a bit about Greek mythology. Uh-huh. And I do know that they have a belief in reincarnation if you're like if you make it so far. I think it's to the um yeah island of the blessed or something like that. I don't know. If you're no like idea. some hero you're you're able to reincarnate. Um I also know that a lot of these illusions, illusions, yeah. Um, okay. uh -huh. <laughs> I know there was, I remember one in particular, and it was like these granddaughters of Dionysus, Ooh. where she was, uh, she was being compared to them. Okay. Uh, so, you know, Dionysus is kind of the Greek god of uh, mm -hmm. wine partying, which I felt there was like this big connection with the opium I don't know I was just like I think I was making like these connections like as I was going I'm like yeah figure it out but I don't actually have like anything solid or in like in particular I do know that these mythologies um they have like other beliefs about death than um most western yeah that seems to me to be like the main focus, right? Is to prepare us for, uh, you know, thinking about death in some other way or having this other, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Hannah, or sorry, gosh, why do your name <laughs> start with H today? Haley, say a little bit what you think. 
Don't worry about it. I get I get stuff like that a lot. So I'm kind of used to it. There are three Haley's in this class and they're all yeah. spelled differently. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I kind of agree with what's been said already. I, th- I think that the reincarnation thing is really interesting. Like the yeah. idea that she's kind of like reincarnated, but he doesn't love her the same way because she doesn't look the same could be something potentially interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. I don't know a lot about mythology either. I did not have a mythology phase as a child. I know a lot of people who did and they all make fun of me for it, but I skipped that one. So my input's probably not the best. I get it. I also wonder if it's part of just the timelessness. Do you have a sense of when this story is taking place? Like what year is it? Is it a long, long, long time ago? Is it 1860? Is it, like, do we have any idea? No, I think is the answer. Yeah, I I didn't really think of it being in any certain time. I don't think that it needed to be. Yeah, there's a sense of anachronism almost, right? At one point, he talks about living in this castle uh, on the Rhine or an abbey. Um, I'm looking on 1167. This is right after Ligia has died. Uh, After a few months, therefore, of weary and aimless wandering, I purchased and put in some repair an abbey, which I shall not name, in one of the wildest and least frequented portions of fair England. Um, so he kind of goes to this place that is an ancient sort of place that's out of time. Uh, they used to live, I'm trying to find the part where it talks about the Rhine, this ancient city on the Rhine. Oh yeah, it's like the first paragraph. What a dork. Uh, yeah, right at the beginning, they live, um, yet I know that I met her most frequently in some, some large old decaying city near the Rhine. Uh, surely I've heard of her speak that there a remotely ancient date can be doubted, right? So like her family is ancient, the places they go are ancient, the, the mythologies that he's focused on are ancient. Um, so there is kind of like a timelessness going on in there. Um, okay, uh, let's talk about Hannah's question. Is this narrator a trustworthy source? Do we believe his story, Hannah? Poe is, I've noticed oftentimes his narrators are not completely reliable. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, whether they're just absolutely insane or they're on some serious drugs. Indeed. I think he does this on purpose. Yeah. You don't really know if this is something that actually happens to the narrator or if the narrator is having some sort of hallucinations. Yeah. Um, I, as someone who really enjoys horror, like to think that this was supposed to be like, you know, like she wakes up and it's Lygia and it's just like really disturbing and awesome um I also think there's something differently horrifying of just hallucinating it all yeah yeah open for interpretation on purpose yeah I think this is something that you can like you don't have to believe that this is a trustworthy source you have to choose yes whether you want it to be or not 
Yeah, Hannah, I think that's a really interesting point. Like the two possibilities are equally horrifying. Either he's actually haunted by the ghost of his dead wife who may or may not have ever existed. Like maybe she's always been a ghost. I have no idea. Um, so ghosties, that could be one terrifying possibility. But the other terrifying possibility is his own mind is the problem. And both of those I think maybe are equally scary in an age that's responding to reason, right? We've just been talking a little bit about the enlightenment and the there's like a new revival going on kind of just before this. And then romanticism kind of says, there are limits to reason, right? There are limits to that kind of mechanical industrial thinking. And that there's this other kind of spiritual world around us that we're not really paying attention to or tapping into. And maybe there's something terrifying out there that we need to, to remind ourselves of. And maybe it's within us, right? Maybe we are the monsters in our whatevers. Uh, Haley, what do you kind of think about this trustworthy narrator? So I do think that a lot of it is, I mean, I don't know. I'm just kind of like a realistic person sometimes as much as I am a giant horror fan. I still tend to look for like the mind in things. And I do think that he's not trustworthy. And I do think that it's like definitely like in his head, like I'm very one or the other. Um, But I do really like the idea that he is completely haunted, like that it's like genuine haunting, like real ghosts. Like, that is so scary <laughs> to imagine. But um, I still just kind of think that the mind can be a lot more interesting, too, because it allows for a little bit more interpretation than just, like, this is a ghost. Yeah, the psychology of it might be just as interesting. Yeah, I think the point that that we're meant to take away from is that this narrator really is not not able to tell the truth, not able to tell the difference between real and not real. Uh, I wanted to ask you both, do you think Lygia was a real person or was she always kind of a fantasy? I think maybe at one point she was just for at least a brief moment of knowing her, but I don't think that she was real for the entire Piece, if that makes any sense mm-hmm. I don't know if I sound stupid but no totally like so yeah I can kind of imagine that happening too and I think I've seen this movie before right where the there is a person who was real who did sort of flute like go in and out of his life but then he kind of created a fantasy about her that outlived their actual connection yeah that's yeah that's kind of what I was trying to get about get at yeah yeah, Hannah, what do you think? I really, like that. I really like that idea. When, I, Especially because when I looked up how to pronounce this name, um, I believe this is also the Greek word for siren. For siren? Oh, I kind of remember that too. Did I not? I didn't write that down as a note to myself, but it kind of sounds right. <laughs> and in Greek mythology, these were women who like, you know, sang men to their death that's basically like you know kind of like mermaids um so I really love the idea that it was like some woman that he maybe just saw in passing and created this whole fantasy with like the fantasy world in his mind yeah I I did when reading this I did believe that this was like his a real person the um adoration I guess sort of felt very real to me Mm -hmm. um 
of course, if this was just someone in passing and he like went crazy or was already crazy and created this whole like life in his mind, then obviously the adoration would probably still be real because he believes it's real. Yeah. Um, but I did believe that like this was a real person that he really lost. And I kind of, I guess that was like the tipping point Mm-hmm. for his insanity like maybe that broke him I mean that's when he started using the drugs I think that's when I went off with that yeah that does kind of seem to be suggested in the narrative is that like after her death that is when things go bad for him right that's when he starts taking this immoderate dose of opium and now cannot tell the difference between his if his wife is dead or not dead um, I'm interested too in how she gets to be supernatural. So there's a suggestion that maybe she always was because of his like lack of memory of seeing her, her ancientness, that might kind of suggest that she's always been supernatural. But how is it that she gets to come back from the dead? Do you have a sense of that? Like what, like, what does the narrator say? How does she get to be so powerful that she comes back from the dead? It sort of came off that she willed it yeah like Mm -hmm. he talked about like willpower and Mm -hmm. um it seems like it was just like it was something that they kind of that kind of just like they wanted it to happen so badly that it did yeah I think that's exactly right and the 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 epigraph is that the name for it? Epigraph? I think so. For the, the quote before the story starts. Uh, and the will therein lieth which dieth not, right? The will does not die. The, the kind of um, the will to live, the will to make things happen, like that will does not die. Does it strike you as interesting that it's in a woman, like that a woman could have a will so strong that she would not die? Are women supposed to have wills that strong does that surprise you I don't, like what, what are your thoughts on that that's kind of a feminine will yeah no I think that is a little surprising I didn't actually really think of that that way until you said it like that she has this power to be able to do those kinds of things like something supernatural is really amazing but I think um this kind of is a little bit into young Goodman Brown territory but I think like yeah. with like him living in Salem, like young Governor Brown, obviously not. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that's kind of like a little bit of a connection there with like her potentially even being like a witch or something. If that is a little, it's a little off the wall, but I think no, I totally see it. Like they're both, I, I see the connection. Yeah. Both of these stories are kind of about, about women who may or may not have this like connection to supernatural power. Um, And I think that's a little, if we need to kind of put it in its historical context a little bit, um, we did not read this piece and now I'm really regretting it, but there were lots of, there's a really interesting article and I'll share it with the rest of the class as like additional reading if you feel like it. Um, But when we're talking about those separate spheres that we've mentioned a couple of different times recently, one of the aspects of that is that women were thought to be at this time like more innocent, more pure, more moral, more directly connected to God. And in that way kind of um, gave them a a kind of power, right? To be the moral center of the family. Um, And I think both of these stories are kind of playing with that idea a little bit by making that a, like, what if it's not a connection to God? 
but to, yeah. to Satan or this other like timeless willpower. Like how can, can we have it both ways? I don't know. What do you think about that, Haley? Um, I think it's hard to say if we can have it both ways. I think it's <laughs> such like a gray area, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I really think that's like super interesting. Like I, I, I'm obviously the young Goodman Brown person in this, so I'm going yes. to go back to that just a tiny bit. But I think yeah, like totally. I, my question, I talked about like the pink ribbon and like the purity coming from that. Um, and then the way that the ribbon is seen later and how you know that it's like, oh no. Yeah. Like, so I think it's more or less like not, um, can there be one or the other, or can, but more can you turn into the other? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if I remember too, well, a lot of our discussion about like uh, fiction and could it be dangerous to give women this kind of imagination? I think this these may be related too. That that within that purity is also the the possibility that it can be taken away or it can be destroyed or turned against itself in the way that you're describing, Haley. Yes. Okay, Hannah. Any last thoughts about Ligia before we turn to Young Goodman Brown? Um, I I want to say uh, in terms of the witchiness of it all. Yes, mm-hmm. there, is, there is a movie with Vincent Price <gasps> called The Tomb of Lygia. Oh, yes, and okay. it is based off of this, except it's like they twist it around, and it's like not right. Um, so I linked into the the class page Vincent Price reading Lygia but like as an audiobook but I didn't know there was a movie Whoa. yes uh, I think it's from the 60s I'm not sure yeah that makes sense um but they definitely twisted it to make Lygia like this evil enchantress that had him under his spell and he's sort of like nuts and he actually like the whole thing is like he actually loves Rowena when he marries her and all this stuff and oh. I didn't like it because they twisted it so much yeah. um especially I don't know they definitely like they twisted up and they added this cat that uh Rowena was supposed to be absolutely terrified of but it was a black cat and they definitely like heavily insinuated that Lygia was like was some kind of witch mm-hmm. uh so I think that really t- like connected all of that yeah I think there's one way to read the story as Legia's will is so powerful that she can kind of manipulate everything and that's great but there's also a way to read it as monstrous right that she becomes monstrous all right at the very end it kind of seems like she's gonna kill him does it not I don't know I don't know if they're gonna be together or not um she's there she is sort of scary but I don't know if I can't tell what's going to happen at the very end. Do you have a sense, either one of you, like what happens at the very, very end? I think it was left ambiguous on purpose. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I actually got the feeling that she was like, hey, I'm alive. Let's go uh, live our lives. And he's just like unquestioningly like cool with it, <laughs> which is terrifying in two separate ways. If it is a hallucination and you think you're living out the rest of your life with a hallucination, then that's a little nuts. Um, a little yeah. Um, but if it's this person that's dead and you're living out the rest of your life with a dead person, that's equally. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the last notes is him shrieking. I shrieked aloud. Can I never, can I never be mistaken? These are the full, the black, the wild eyes of the lady, of the Lady Legia. Uh, he's shrieking at the end. That's not exactly like a happy ending. It's not exactly yeah. like, hooray, she's back. Haley, what do well, you think? And I think back to like the deaths and the hallucinations thing, like if he or if she were to kill him i think that's still incredibly frightening because it's like a hallucination is killing him if you go back to like if my interpretation of how i feel that she is a hallucination especially even at this time um like i think it like his mind is killing him more than she would be like Mm. he's kind of the monster too yeah he's definitely a monster he's been a monster this whole time I love it. All right, I want to make sure we have plenty of time to talk about Young Goodman Brown. So let's go on there. Okay, Haley, give us the quick summary. Okay, I'll keep this kind of quick so we have a lot of time to talk. Um, So basically, Young Goodman Brown is about Goodman Brown. He um, is just like going on like this like little journey and everything seems fine. But his wife is kind of like, oh, no, I'm really worried. Like, don't leave me. And he's like, but I have to. I must. I don't know why um, he must, but he must. But he must. We don't really know why he must, but he must. <laughs> um, and he comes across this man on his journey with this um, like staff that is like a yes. serpent. And it says like, it's like so like real and like lifelike that it feels like it's moving. Um, who is clearly believed to be the devil. Um, and the devil speaks to him and he is kind of like, yeah, like I knew your, your, your family. I knew your dad. I knew your grandparents. I knew like everyone. Um, and he's like, I don't really believe that that's kind of messed up. Like, what do you mean? And they tell him about this ceremony going on in the woods and he invites him to join. And Goodman Brown is like, I don't really know. But then um, oh, I also wanted to mention that his wife's name is literally Faith. Yes, very important. Um, <laughs> I forgot to say that. I just realized that. Um, but he sees someone else, I believe, like an older woman, and that he knows is like very popular in the church. And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to the ceremony. And it's like, oh, so everyone is kind of turning evil Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. so he ends up going to the ceremony to see if his wife is there after he sees a pink ribbon which is the ribbon that his wife wore when i talk about my question um he sees the ribbon and he thinks that she's going to be there and he doesn't see her at first but then he does and he like just goes through this like whole kind of like moment in his mind and then he eventually just decides that he has to return home so mm-hmm. he comes home eventually and he sees all these townspeople that he saw on his way out or he saw like during his like fit i guess i can i can call it yeah. um he sees all these people and he has no trust in them anymore he has no faith um yes. he lives the rest of his life in this utter despair he doesn't even love his wife anymore thinking that she has turned to the devil even though her name is literally faith um and yeah that's that's pretty much the basics that's really good that's good I think it has a lot of the same feeling of Ligia of like did it or did it not happen is it yeah not real is it in his head is it not 
I mean, and, and Hawthorne is pretty direct about it in that next to last paragraph, one sentence long, had Goodman Brown fallen asleep in the forest and only dreamed a wild dream of a witch meeting? Uh, there's kind of a suggestion that none of this happened at all, but he's certainly acting as if it did, right? Yeah. It changes his life forever. That was really good. Thank you. Um, yeah. Any clarifying questions? Anything that kind of stood out to you as unusual or? Um, I read this in high school, so yes. I like got it, especially the second time. So I think I'm good on questions. Was there anything new this time or anything that stood out to you in the second reading? Um, or that was clearer now or? Nothing crazy because I, yeah. I went to Lincoln Park, so we got like real in-depth. Cool. Cool, but cool, cool. yeah but um I think the one thing that did stand out to me a little bit more though is again the ribbon yeah um, yeah, yeah and that's why I wanted to talk about it so much because I just was so like Let's interested in the idea of like the, especially the color being pink mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like what that really means yeah okay cool we'll get there Hannah ask me yeah. any questions you need to ask and then we'll dig in no I think I'm I think really I'm good yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, a couple of things that I wanted to point out just before we get in, I think we all know Hawthorne to be kind of this critic of the Salem colonial life, right? His ancestor was a part of the Salem witch trials. Um, the Scarlet Letter, which he's best known for, is kind of this critique of those same people. And so is this, right? Um, and it specifically mentions a few people who were assass assassinated, no, executed, that's better, yeah. um, <laughs> as a part of the Salem witch trials. Uh, and that's Goody Cloyce uh, and Goody uh, Corey and Martha Carrier. All of those people are real people who were really a part of it. And this story of a witch's sacrament that's sort of like a parallel to the Christian sacrament, but like a dark one, um, is a part of the testimony of the Salem witch trials. So all of that kind of has a bit of um, historical context that's real, but then there's this other level that's going on. Okay, so with all the time we have left, Haley, talk to me about the allegory. Talk to me about Yay. the real. Okay, great. Um, so I just think just first and foremost that her name being Faith is really interesting and that has something to do with the ribbon as well, in my opinion. Um, like she is just meant to be this pure symbol. She's meant to be holy and I think the ribbon is incredibly significant because it is in that color pink and that like feminine color as well, but also um, pink can mean purity. Like it literally does mean that. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, she's wearing it in the beginning. She has the pink ribbons of her cap. Um, and she's just like, everything is fine, but like, she knows that something is off like she does not want him to leave and I think the moment that you notice that the pink ribbon is seen again flowing in the wind is so powerful like I don't know what how I'm trying to describe this I'm sorry I'm a little off right now but like I'm with you yeah um, like, yeah it, it's kind of this evidence that it's real yeah, it, yeah, it definitely like kind of like hits you in the face too, where it's kind of just like, oh, wait, like she's going to be a part of this. Like she's about to be brought into this. Like it's not just about this little place that he's traveling to or where he is stumbled upon. It's really about his home life as well. And it's about where he's coming from and what's going to happen. Like it kind of like, it's a little bit of like foreshadowing almost. 
Yeah. Well, and I think especially some of the things that he says right in the beginning about his faith. And again, I don't think we're ever meant to separate faith, the person from faith, the concept. I think that's yeah. clear to us right at the beginning. Uh, but he says some things like, um, where's the part about I'll cling to your skirts all the way to heaven. Here it is on the first page. Uh, Poor little faith. What a wretch am I to leave her on such an errand. She talks of dreams too. Methought as she spoke, there was trouble in her face as if a dream had warned her what work is to be done tonight, but no, no, twould kill her to think it. Well, she's a blessed angel on earth. And after this one night, I'll cling to her skirts and follow her to heaven. What, what do you make of this part? he's sort of like putting all of his salvation on her. Why yeah. her responsibility to save him? Haley, do well, you? Well, I think it goes back to what we were talking about before, how women were seen as like the holy figure. And I think that it's kind of like that, where it's kind yeah. of like, well, if I have her, I'm a sure shot to get into heaven because I have captured this like perfect, pure person. And I just have to go along with her. And can, she, can any woman live up to that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think that's a lot of pressure. Point, right? Is yeah. that if he puts all, he, he gets to do whatever he wants to do. If he wants to go out in the woods on Halloween night, or I don't know when, it's like this night of all nights, some sort of like supernatural night. Yeah. And he can like walk around with the flipping devil who he recognizes <laughs> as the devil. Um, and go watch this thing and think that he can like escape as long as she never sees it what's up with that yeah <laughs> that wasn't very uh, academic but that's one of my favorite academic <laughs> questions is like what's up with that yeah Tana, do you have a thought what what's up with that yeah um I guess I was okay so I know that the Puritans, like Hawthorne, just hated them. Yeah. Uh, especially because of like his family and everything. Um, so their belief in everything was kind of just like, you do good. You may or may not get in heaven. You're chosen beforehand or whatever. Um, but then there's like this, you know, when Hawthorne is writing, there's this other religion now that says like if you just hold on to your personal faith in god you can get into heaven so like he has like an actual faith and if he like i kind of got that like he wants to hold on to her and um like if he just holds on to this personing faith but also his own like belief that he has like that you can do what you want mm-hmm. <laughs> um but I also got the feeling that, like, he knew he was going to see the devil. I thought that he was maybe, like, going to make a deal with the devil. And that normally means, like, hey, you're going to hell after that. Yeah. Um, I got, so, I was just, I guess that is one thing that kind of confused me. Because I thought that he really was going to make a deal with the devil. And he believed that if he just held on to his wife, that he could, like, follow her into the afterlife. And yeah. um, then I realized as like, maybe it wasn't really a deal with the devil. He was going to this black mass. He was like, I'm just going to do it this once and then I'll yeah. never do it again. So I think he was really just 
hoping that he could pretend it didn't happen and hide behind his wife for that. I'm totally confused by this too, right? Why does he go out there? Uh, is it, I don't think he ever intends to accept the devil's offer, right? So many times he says, take my staff. Um, I think like three, three or four times. This is an important biblical illusion and biblical story as well, like being offered the thing, a temptation, and then rejecting that temptation. Um, do you remember there's like Jesus in the wilderness and the devil comes to him and tempts him like three or four times, I don't know, uh, with a couple of different things. And each time he rejects him. And that's sort of the, that's how you prove your, your worthiness, I guess, is that you have to face the temptation and then reject it. And so he, I think is purposefully trying to, to prove that he can resist all these temptations. He's going to look at it. He's going to watch it. He's going to be offered it, but each time he's going to reject it. And what he finds out is that nobody else has rejected it. Everybody else has accepted it at a different time. Like everyone has fallen into temptation. And the result is that he is like miserable for the rest of his life. Uh, talk to me a little bit about being miserable for the rest of his life. <laughs> Haley, why, why does this event destroy him? Um, so I don't know how I want to go about this, but um, I don't know. I think it's just like his entire life has just been completely destroyed. Like everything that he thought that he knew about the people around him, he doesn't know anymore. And whether it's true or not, um, I think it's still something, I think it still says something like with the fact that like every single person has given in at some point. And I think that that doesn't necessarily have to be part of the dream. I think that can be real life as well. And perhaps it's obviously not going with the devil, but in other ways, these people have given into temptations, committed sins and have become unpure. Um, so I think it's just hard for him to live with that, with that fact, like, um, like just the way that everything has completely changed and there's no going back and everyone that he thought that he knew is someone else. His worldview doesn't require, doesn't allow any imperfection. Right? Yeah. Such a perfect standard that faith cannot live up to, neither can any of the good people around him. Uh, yeah, and, and we all fall short, right? We all fall into temptation. Uh, and yet that's not been his worldview. Like that's not been the, the lesson he's absorbed from anyone, right? Yeah. That's, nothing has given him space to think that imperfection is possible. Yeah, Hannah, what do you think in our last 30 seconds? I don't know. I mean, um, I think that Hawthorne was trying to say something about the Puritans. Um, yeah, for sure. Same way he did with the Scarlet Letter. He was like, he's like, why are you making judgment when you're bad people yourselves? Like, isn't it a sin to judge? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I really think that that's kind of where he was going with this too. He's like, you these people accusing them of witchcraft but you were sinners too mm -hmm. now make that a chain of all the texts we've read that talk about excuse me hypocrisy in america right it's just one in a long line of those texts and so he's kind of going back in time to to recover an original hypocrisy <laughs> right that's like a pre-constitutional hypocrisy but then everybody else is kind of noting it as well um and his sort of point of view seems to be that that hypocrisy 
is baked in somehow, or like it's, it's something that we can't get away from, but we can't really be like young Goodman Brown and just like shut down and die and be miserable about it. There, there may be some other way to live. Okay, great. We're out of time. So let's kind of wrap up with some recommendations. I recommended uh, the Ligia reading by Vincent Price. I think it's really nice. Uh, Hannah pointed out this uh, film version, which I'm super excited about finding out more. And I also finished watching Haunting of Bly Manor. And I don't want to like spoil it for anyone, but if you watch it, I think you'll feel the Ligia tendencies towards the end. That's all I'll say. <laughs> any other recommendations of things you think people should watch? Um, I don't have any like specific recommendations, but I think that if you're interested in this kind of like horror story, I think Lovecraft is a really good place to start for anybody. Like obviously he's iconic, so everyone, most people know who he is. But um, whenever I read Young Goodman Brown in high school, I was in a horror related class and we focused on a lot of Lovecraft. Mm. a lot more than just like the sci-fi parts there's still a lot of really good stories that deal with like the devil and things like that I like it I like it a lot I was also going to suggest Sabrina the Teenage Witch the as like that black mass kind yeah. of thing I love that part <laughs> all right well thanks everyone for listening thank you panelists for being a part of our conversation today and have fun bye <laughs>